0: QuantLayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of QuantLayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast.
1: This is Vikram from QuantLayer, and thank you for listening to our 14th podcast. So how do you turn a bug into a feature? On this episode, we talk about how we used Bugsnag to do just that. We then get into an interesting discussion around using third-party software applications to move software projects more quickly with less risk. We also highlight just how useful the Bitcoin dev mailing list is for learning about how the Bitcoin core team thinks about the protocol and how their discussions underpin important considerations around scaling and network growth. We also look at a terrible case of UX and VE chain, how Google is adding Ethereum to BigQuery, how $800 million worth of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash moved out of a Silk Road wallet, and a very suspicious BitMEX short squeeze. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. That would really help us out. Hope you enjoy this one. Hey, everyone. You got QuantLayer here. Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fezan, also known as The Wizard. Hey, everyone. Hey, Faison. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. So, yeah, we can just get right into it. So uh, first off, one thing that we wanted to do, and this isn't an ad, you know, we're not compensated in any way. Uh, we have no relationship with Bugsnag, but we wanted to give a shout out to Bugsnag has been a really awesome tool during our development process. So we've used them across all of our apps recently. And what it does basically is it gives you an easy way to review bugs that come in. So, for example, for one of our alerting sources in our primary application, we have we get notified when exchanges change their APIs, for example, because exchanges often do this. And what will happen is if our parser parses an Exchange API and then that Exchange API changes its format, that usually will break our parser. So then we get notified by email by Bugsnag that, hey, uh, you know, something happened here and then we can go investigate it and go fix it. So this happens relatively often, by the way, you know, we talked about this on a prior episode, I think episode number five, it's titled Crypto Teams Need to Communicate Better, where we basically highlight this issue where exchanges often third-party APIs in general, but in crypto, in the crypto space, crypto exchanges tend to do this quite a bit where they're changing their APIs so that it ends up affecting downstream users like ourselves. So, you know, the way they might change their APIs, they might change their format. You know, they're delivering it in a particular format. They change that. They might 404 on you or they might drop public support for their public API. So I think we've seen it all at this point.
0: Yeah, I would say for us, we have hundreds of, APIs or even just uh, data sources that we're scraping or connecting to in in some way and you know traditionally you'd mock out your third party APIs have a lot of unit tests and then routinely check your APIs for their like for uptime and for their contract not changing but what we're you know what we found is that's obviously not nearly good enough because the majority of our issues come from production like environments so it's either something to do with uh rate limits having one you know something on our end running for a long time uh the api breakages uh the vicro mentioned so it's really important that we're getting data on what's going wrong in production or in staging over time and obviously we have logs for everything but it's a lot nicer to just deal with bugstang because it basically their ux is a lot nicer than a lot of the other stuff i've used so
1: yeah, so as far as the UX goes, you know, say in the morning, uh, overnight, let's say a Korean exchange went down. And now this happens a lot. You know, we're tracking we're tracking hundreds of exchange APIs. And so a few of them can go down overnight. When we get into work in the morning, we'll get an email from Bugsnag and we can go look at our Bugsnag logs and see when that exchange went down, what the bug looks like, if it continues to be a bug. So, you know, say the bug hit say we're, we're at work at like 9 a.m. or something and the bug hit at 4 a.m. Eastern time and then it never re- repeated. That means that, okay, well, maybe their API went down for a little bit and then they put it back online. But we can go look and investigate the bug and, and then make a decision, okay, is this something we need to fix? Is this 100% on their end or do they change something that we need to change on our end? So this really helps us figure it out very quickly. And so just imagine like being a developer and having to go through the server logs and and manually trace where the issue was. And frankly, you might not even know about the issue if you didn't have something like Bugsnag. Your, your server logs might be so deep, especially if you're tracking as many sources as we are, your logs might be so deep, you actually don't really see it if it's not like crashing your application.
0: Yeah, and the other thing that I really like is the way that the bugs are represented. Like obviously, well, you know, there's a lot of tools out there like this that will show you the bugs in your app and will send you some sort of an alert, which Bugsnag also does. But what I like is that it's very easy to manage multiple projects, both front end and back end, uh, different environments like production and staging, different versions. It's really easy to see where the bugs are coming in. And often, like, you know, if we're using it for both Ember and for our back end. We can see where the, the errors sort of uh, travel through. And what's nice is they have a really nice uh, UX in terms of being able to silence or ignore stuff. So if you think you fix something, you can sort of take it off the list, but it reappears. It'll it'll show back up. If you have something that's you just want to ignore because you know it's not a real issue right now, uh, you can you know fully silence it. So having that timeline, having the different environments, and having the way to connect front end, back end, and even some external integrations like Full story that let you see what what's going on in more detail is is really slick.
1: Yeah, and you know its primary use case is to help you. You know, find bugs, keep track of them, and figure out what you're going to be doing with them. But what really surprised us is that we actually used Bugsnag to develop a feature, and we were totally not expecting it. So here's a little background. So lots of coins, especially the most popular ones, have their source code repos on GitHub. And so one of the things our platform alerts on is when new commits come in to a coin source repo. So, so if something like Gollum Network has just committed uh, a bunch of new code, our platform picks up on that and then delivers them into a, in a nice little feed. And then you can go and look at the commit and do a little discovery of your own to see whether or not this is important and whatnot. So why would you care about this? Well, if you care about a coin, you better care about the progress or lack thereof, as we've seen across many coins. You, you better care about the progress in its code base. You know, you, you might ask questions like, are they fixing bugs? How serious are these bugs? Should some of these bugs have been caught by someone with more experience? Are they doing silly things like pushing up secret AWS keys to GitHub? This would be like uploading your password to the Internet for everyone to see. Did they get an important feature uh, merged in? So you can see all this stuff with the alerts that the platform surfaces. And that's really nice because you can investigate all those questions. So something else that can happen, this, this is back to how this feature ended up coming into being which I'll talk about in a second. So something else that can happen is because your code is public, you often use different licenses. And this is not a crypto only thing. It's just across open source software. There's the MIT license, which is a very common license for a lot of projects. And I'll just read it to you so you can get a sense on what some of these licenses are like, because I think a lot of people just use these licenses, but don't actually read them. But okay, here we go. Permission is hereby granted free of charge to any person obtaining a copy of the software and associated documentation files, the software, to deal in the software without restriction, including without limitation, the rights to use, copy, modify, merge, publish, distribute, sublicense, and or sell copies of the software, and to permit persons to whom the software is furnished to do so subject to the following conditions. And then it goes off a little bit. We'll link link to this in the show notes, but that's that's the main section there. Other open source repos have other requirements. So take cryptos, for example. There's often a clause in a lot of crypto projects about licensing, the license and attribution. So if a coin gets forked, the parent repo can require the newly forked coin to give some kind of attribution. So if the source code attributions are incorrect, or if you simply ignore the license, which plenty of
0: people do do, you can get in trouble. So this happens to coin... Dangerous if you're forking a project that has intentionally put bugs in to prevent you from doing so. Right. <laughs> so, this happens to a lot of coins. So, one
1: coin, for example, Sumo coin, it was just, we talked about this on a prior podcast as well, but it was this tiny market cap privacy coin that had forked from Monero. So, they hadn't properly attributed Monero developers. And I think also they were kind of being, um, they're they're causing unnecessary tension with Monero developers too. They would just tweet at them and have people from uh, the sumo coin community tweet at the Monero developers and cause all kinds of ruckus. But as a result, they got their coin a DMCA notice, which is a, a copyright violation. And that means that the repo was pulled altogether from GitHub. So when that happened, it was earlier this year, the coin is down like 60% really quickly and it's never recovered. I mean, now it's down from its highs, like over 90%, like so many other coins. But the fact that this coin got hit so hard so fast because it got a DMCA notice. So if you were an investor in this coin and you saw this happen and you, and you asked yourself, like, why are these people, this is not professional at all. All it did require was a simple attribution to Monero that the project was forked from Monero and this was the, the date that it was forked on. I think that's that was all the attribution that they were looking for. And why are they being so aggressive about this too? Like, why are they causing all this drama with Monero? You would have just, I, I know what I would have done. I would just pulled my money out of the coin. I was like, this isn't a serious project. It's obviously run by, by imbeciles. I'll just get out. <laughs> so, you know, we learned about all this because of Bugsnag. And, you know, without getting into specific implementation details, uh, Bugsnag basically pointed us to a bug that something was wrong with this particular coin. And it was just one repo out of so many other repos that had worked fine. So we went and looked at those repos and then realized, oh, there's a DMC I noticed for this repo. That's w- that's why it was breaking the the process. So thank you, Bugsnag, for that. I guess another thing this b- brings to mind is also just how teams can just buy things off the shelf versus you know developing certain features internally. So Faison, I know you have very strong feelings about this.
0: Yeah, I do. I feel like your job as a developer first and foremost is to not write any code, and second is to remove as much code as possible, and third only if like absolutely necessary should you actually start writing code. And what I mean by that is you know, when you're building something there's some like there's some core problem you're trying to solve, and then the whole bunch of supporting like administrative tasks and chances are something has already been built that handles most of those administrative tasks. So like in our case, our core problem is pulling in lots of data sources and building intelligence on top of them to alert on what's interesting. That's it. Everything else in terms of finding bugs, logging, deployment, you know, even like running servers, like none of that is what like we want to be doing. And so we should be buying as much of that as possible. And so, like Bugsnag does a lot of stuff that we would never build on our own. And there is a few reasons for this. One, you are never like unless you are huge, you are never going to be able to devote the sort of resources to to solving this problem as a company who that's their sole product, like Bugsnag. Two, because it's not your like main problem, you are never going to do like as good of a job solving it, even if you had the resource. Like, let's say you had the budget. And then three, I think everyone underestimates the real cost of building stuff in-house that is, again, not solving your core problems. Because your core problem has a lot of leverage. Like That's what you're building your company around or saving a lot of money by doing. So investing in that and continuing to invest in that makes sense. But everything else is a cost, and I it, those costs are, tend to be highly underestimated.
1: Yeah, I guess it would be like, just Im- you know, imagine you're a software company and you want to use something like Bugsnag. We've used this other thing called—I know you, this one you like a lot too. I've used it more than I have the uh, uh, full story.
0: Yeah, uh, just to give people an idea, it's basically—it's uh, essentially records a user session, but with all the like credentials and form fields and all filtered out. And you can actually connect it to Bugsnag. So whenever there's a bug, you can actually it's immediately tied to a video timestamp of what that user was doing at the time. And it's been immensely useful on other projects that were more UX-heavy at uh, debugging issues.
1: Yeah, we don't use it on this one because we're mostly delivering alerts to users and there isn't too much user interaction otherwise. So, uh, you know, once we start building out a few more features that have that are UX-heavy, I guess it would be, make more sense to integrate then. But, you know, we're not going to do that until we're, we're ready to do that anyway. But I mean, if you have a small software team, even if you have a large software team, and I would say even in particular, if you have a large software team, you don't have the, you necessarily have the resources to go build out like a, your own version of Bugsnag or own version of Full Story. I mean, just think about it from the perspective of these companies themselves. These are full-blown SaaS companies that are making a killing off of being the, sole, the best provider of their small little integration in the space. So yeah. not, not to say Bugsnag and FullStory is a small little integration. They're highly useful, highly valuable, but you can pay like less than $100 a month to just integrate it into your system. That's 1200 a year versus what paying, you know, a full-time software developer, like hundred grand a year to implement that. And it won't just be one software developer. It'll be a PM, software developers, like designers, all this stuff
0: for something that's not your core competency. People wildly underestimate the internal cost of software development is what I found. Like they assume, you know, oh, we have software developers, which means we have software development capacity. But they don't really put a cost, like correctly, cost that person's time. Number one, they even more wildly underestimate the maintenance cost of software. Like it's one thing to let's say we go out and we clone all of the features of Bugsnag. What about six months from now? What about a year from now? Or like what has had to be done to keep it up and running? And then they. Even more wildly estimate, and you alluded to this a little earlier, the investment in like product and product planning. So what? Yeah, what you were mentioning was like these SaaS businesses are the ones that have essentially won in their space. So, you know, multiple companies go out and say we're going to build bug tracking software. A handful, or you know, of them capture most of the SaaS market, and essentially like. They've solved that problem best and the ones that are continuing to do well are the ones that continue to solve that problem the best. You're never going to be able to replicate that sort of momentum and effort on like the product side. Even if let's take away the let's say you have the best software developers and infinite budget, like just that problem is yeah. gonna be hard to solve. Like you really need to only try and solve those problems for the things that make you money if you're a software company and buy everything else, unless, you know, maybe you're Google sized and then the equation's different. Right.
1: Yeah, I'm, I just went to Bugsnag's pricing page and it's just hilarious what you get. Uh So their highest tier pro is $54 a month. Starts at 150,000 events per month and five seats. So it includes A-B testing, SLA, subscription tier, segmentation, Splunk and Amazon SQS support. There's no way you're going to be able to develop this thing internally. And at the same speed of what this gives you, with very simple integration. So what do you think, like... We've seen this a lot, right? We see teams like decide, "Hey, let's just build it. We don't want to pay fifty a month, so we're going to stick two devs on it." Oh, they're on the bench. We'll just put them on on this. Like, what do? You, why do you think that happens? Is that like a product manager type of decision, or like what do you think is yeah. going on?
0: I don't know that there's any single reason for it. I think it's different across the stack. To, you know, the structure of each company. Like some places, the developers really like to build everything themselves. Other places, I've seen like the thought of spending $100 a month is just not palatable to whoever's in charge of budget. Uh, like They're just miscalibrated on the cost of buying versus the cost of their internal labor. Other times, it's just people think that like they, they don't need all the features of the external tool. And then once they get going, they realize like, oh, there were all these unforeseen problems. So it's usually just miscalibration in terms of like comparing the two options. Yep.
1: So one other thing I thought we could talk about is about getting to the roots of a crypto project. So what do I mean by this? Well, one of the roots of crypto are its software developers. In particular, for example, a root of Bitcoin is its core team. You know, wouldn't you want to know things like, oh, what is the core team thinking? How do they actually think about something? How are they prioritizing things? What do they think is important to incorporate into the protocol next? I would think all this stuff would be... Super important to you if you care about Bitcoin,
0: right? Yeah, absolutely. Because a what we've seen is in the case of some other coins where they made the wrong decisions, it totally kills the viability of that. I mean, just going back to the Sumo, Sumo coin thing you mentioned, I think that's a great example of of that. Looking at Bitcoin specifically, it's it's interesting because it's the oldest one, so you don't have any anything to compare it to. But when you look at a lot of Newer coins, if you use you know Bitcoin as a reference of one that was it definitely is the most successful one, you can't argue with that just in terms of market cap and adoption and all of that. If you look at what they did right, you can start you know sort of create a profile and then start profiling some of these other teams against against that
1: yeah, and so one of the things I think they have done right is be very open about their decision making through the use of their Bitcoin dev mailing list. So it's a really great resource and we'll link to it in the show notes, but it's a mailing list that anyone can join. And we see a lot of questions. First of all, a lot of the core team is in there, uh, meaning they're responding to questions by people who are interested in like, oh, I'm thinking about proposing this update to the protocol that does this thing. What do you guys think? And then very quickly, one of the a couple of the core team members will highlight. Okay, these are the couple issues. Oh, this is a good idea. This is a bad idea. Well, we talked about this like three years ago. We didn't want to implement it because of this. You'll see a lot of stuff like that. So, and it's all archived. Like if you go look at the archive, you can actually see what um, they've been talking about.
0: Yeah, and that's some of the stuff that's the most interesting to me. The we thought we talked about this three years ago, but didn't want to do it because of this. Because I feel like there's probably a whole, like if you were to compile a list of all of those things, you would then go find a graveyard of dead coins that didn't heed some of those warnings. (laughs) And we've seen that with like some of the, you know, the the, uh, time warp attacks and whatnot with some newer coins where it's been discussed in the Bitcoin list a few years ago. And then in in newer coins, it was ignored and it, it got them.
1: Yeah. It's it's really awesome. And it's really cool to see how they think about the project too. I think that's one of the biggest, it's not only just getting answers, it's also, okay, the the core devs, how do they actually think about this? Like, where do they see it going? Like someone will come in and ask, hey, we need to have a quantum resistant algorithm. And the response will be like, yeah, we do, but we don't need it right now. Things like that. So you'll get a lot of interesting like At least I get a lot of interesting feedback from just reading what these guys are saying. So you basically have access to people who are building the Bitcoin protocol. So if you're a developer interested in working on something, you can ask questions there. You think the responses are pretty reasonable and level headed. They're always like super smart devs who are out there in the world who can very easily put a simple idea into simple words. So I'll give us an example here. So there was this topic that came up on the on the listserv around multiple test nets versus a single like late test net. So a test net is basically a staging environment. It's an environment that mimics production, which you can test new features on. So there was a thread that started on August 30th. The title of the thread was "Testnet three re-est. And I think that was just a misspelling of reset and it was from Shiva S., who's the CEO of a company called Blockonomics, which is a decentralized and permissionless payments company. So he, he emailed the listserv and he said, hi, testnet is now 1,400,000 blocks and a full sync is taking at least 48 hours. Is a test testnet reset scheduled in the next release or any reason not to do a reset? fast onboarding slash lower disk overheads would be very much appreciated for testing purposes regards. So Peter Todd, he responded, is one of the uh, Bitcoin developers. Actually, I'd advocate the opposite. I'd want Testnet to be a larger blockchain than Mainnet to find size related issues first. Note that for testing reg test is often a better alternative and you can set up private reg test blockchains fairly easily and with good control over exactly when and how blocks are created. So that was really interesting to me. Basically, he's saying, "Okay, I know you're asking for a smaller test net, but why don't we actually have a bigger test net where we can handle size related issues early on? So that was really cool. And then someone else piped in and said, hey, why don't we have two test nets? And another person suggested that they have a light testnet and then a normal one. And then Greg Maxwell, one of the other main developers, he chimes in. This is really long. I won't read the whole thing. But he basically says, I, I would much rather have assigned blocks testnet with a predictable structured reorg pattern with some config flags. This part's important. There are many applications where the mind testnet just doesn't give you anything useful. It's too stable when you want it to be a bit unstable and too wildly unstable when you want it to be, want a bit of stability. E.g., there are very few test cases where a 20,000 block reorg does anything useful for you, yet they happen on testnet. Okay. And then I just want to read this last line because it's funny. He says, ordinary noise require you cope your entirely universe being removed from existence and replaced by something almost, but not quite entirely different at the whim of some Cthulian blind idiot god. <laughs> Do you always get some like, Cool responses with a bit of flair. I like it. So Faison, I don't know, what do, you, what do you think about this?
0: Yeah, so this is interesting. So obviously I haven't done a lot of testing on the Bitcoin uh, testnet, but just drawing some parallels to uh, you know other uh, spaces in software development. So Peter Todd's response about making the testnet larger to find size-related issues is interesting because we see that in production applications where you want to do load testing and like of spiky loads that are much larger than you're going to actually see in real life. So, you know, you can handle it. Or if Netflix has a really good engineering blog and they talk about their, like, I think it started with chaos monkey. And now there's tools on top of that where they take servers down or clusters down or entire regions down on purpose so that their system is designed to be like in production, they randomly take chunks of their network down so that the system is designed to be much more resilient than than the conditions it's going to see in real life. And so I think that definitely, from what Peter's saying, it makes a lot of sense to have a, a test environment that essentially torture tests everything much more severely than you're going to see in production. That's a pretty common principle you see throughout a lot of different types of engineering. But then at the same time, people need to be able to have something that's a little less unwieldy for actually testing some of their uh, scenarios against. So I don't know what what the answer is, but it's definitely an interesting conversation. It's just, you know, something I'd been like speculating on and I don't have enough information yet to have a good answer on this. And I think we talked about this earlier because there was some article about FPGAs being able to simulate entire blockchains was, uh, you know, like essentially the, the network is a bunch of, Independent actors with a relatively small set of like things that they can do, like as a as a you know node or a miner. There's a relative you know it's a finite set of actions you can do. There's a finite set of like rewards or stimuli, whatever you want to call it, like actions you can perform and sti- uh, rewards for those actions. And so, it would be interesting to see how effective it would be to be able to artificially simulate. Any of these networks, like, you know, much large, like you could essentially simulate a very large test net, a very small test net with different uh, randomly generated actors in sort of a game theory style simulation, and then maybe even feed in some real time, uh, real net or test net data to inform that simulation. So that's just sort of a, a pie in the sky thing, but something that might be interesting.
1: Yeah. I wonder if we'll see just more hardware dedicated to that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I think we definitely will. I mean, people do it for, you know, for weather simulations, for anything where you have a lot of possible outcomes at each stage that are dependent on the, you know, the previous condition. So it's not a novel problem in like the general sense. So I think we'll definitely see see some more of that sort of thing. On a similar note, recently we also saw uh, Bitcoin Cash essentially do a stress test as well of, uh, I think they sent through a whole bunch of, uh, minimum price or minimum cost transactions, like they s- hammered their network to see how it would behave and the transaction price stayed stable, which I think is a, is a success.
1: Yeah. The context here is basically, you know, I'm sure everyone here is super familiar with the drama with Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash. It's almost a year old. No, it's a little over a year old now. I think the Bitcoin Cash fork anniversary has passed at least by a few weeks. But, you know, there's a big argument last year about uh, block size. They call it the block size debate. If you just Google that, there's plenty of stuff out there about it. But this stemmed from the view that Bitcoin's blocks, this is the Bitcoin cash view, that Bitcoin's block size was too small. And because it was too small, fees would spike. And Bitcoin cash uh, proponents would say, like, we just, why don't we just increase the block size? That way we'll be able to keep the fees low because if you keep, if you increase the block size, you can fit more transactions in there and keep the fees lower. And there's a big battle about this and you know, the battle continues in many different ways, depending on who you ask, but uh, that's a little background on it. So I guess not judging Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Cash versus Bitcoin here, but it looks like what they are trying to do is stress test in production what the effect of a large number of transactions would be on the fees. And it looks like the fees stayed pretty low.
0: Yes. 63% of their volume over 24 hours was these minimum fee transactions. That's pretty essentially tripling the, you know, the load. Yep.
1: So yeah, we will, we will see. So one alert that came into the platform was another one of these V chain chat admin alerts. And this one was pretty interesting from a crypto UX perspective. Like, I don't think this alert is tradable, let's say, but uh, it, it is pretty interesting. So just want to talk about it. So a little bit of background. Our platform catches what uh, team Telegram admins are saying in their chats. So they're always giving up important information in their chat room. So like stuff like roadmap updates, how things are tracking versus their deadlines, basically how their project is progressing. So other times... You know, reviewing these chats really gives us insight into how teams are thinking about their projects. So we talked a little earlier about the Bitcoin dev mailing list, and, you know, I'm not going to say this is like that, but if you are able to have a, some kind of pipe with the, with the development team, with the marketing team of a coin, you can get a sense on how they think about things. And I think that's really important from an investor perspective. So... The chat we're referencing here, and I'll just read it out loud, was this. And so this is from one of the V chain chat admins. And they're talking to um, to um someone who's confused about something. But, okay. Passcode, password, mnemonic phrase, and passkey are all different. Which one can't you remember? Okay, so context for this. The admin is replying to someone who was confused about how to access their wallet. What's interesting, though, is this whole, like... Passcode, password, mnemonic phrase, and passkey business. First off, I mean, those four things, like at at least three of those things, passcode, password, and passkey sound the same. Like if someone just asked you for that, they all sound like synonyms of the same thing. Mnemonic phrase, okay, is a little different. But if you just said passcode, password, and passkey to me, I would have no idea like what, what would be the difference between these. They all sound the same.
0: Yeah, and mnemonic phrase to most people also might not be very clear.
1: Right. So, yeah, we can't expect users to just know the differences between all those phrases. Um, Like I said, passcode, password, passkey, they all sound really similar. You know, what happens if someone mixes them up? I think that's totally natural. I think it's very reasonable to actually assume someone would. So I view like that on its own is like being a pretty solid UX failure. Secondly, why do you need four different secret codes to access your wallet? You know, forget crypto. If you had to use any app that required four different passwords to use, like how would you feel about that? You have to, uh, three of which who sound the same. So I, I don't feel like the team really put themselves in a non-technical user's shoes there. So like their users try to think about it, for, again, think about it things from the user's perspective. They're not you know, they're not morons. They're trying to support your network. They're holding your your coin and your token. And you're just confusing them with like a complete disregard for UX. So and you should think about this too. If you're if you're on a coin team and you're doing stuff like this, like investors will recognize good projects and bad projects based on their public UX. You know, if you put yourself in investor shoes, like how does having four different things that that sound kind of similar bode for UX adoption? It doesn't bode well. I think you're just going to get a, p- a bunch of people who are, like, confused all the time. So, I don't know, Faison, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said about the uh, UX being, like, a barrier for most users. On the on the flip side, the, the other piece of that is, like, we're dealing with, like, you know, these are currencies and coins and whatnot, but under the hood, like, there's some fundamental cryptographic rules that have informed a lot of these like passcodes pass keys passwords and mnemonic phrases and a lot of the times getting around that is not a ux issue there's like a you know a fundamental technical reason why that's needed and so i think there's a balance to be found between like not like, this is something that's very security critical it's like you can't enable ux by compromising security but there's a lot that can be done in terms of communicating, uh, just the tone of the way you're communicating, how you communicate, how you educate users that can do a lot to improve UX. But there are some fundamental limitations that don't have an easy solution without compromising security as well. So there's not an easy answer to this one. So that's um, totally
1: fair from a like developer development perspective. Um, but even what you call these things for the user to see, like pass, like they don't necessarily need to be the same names as yeah, what the, that, that what the developers a lot of sense. call them, like, right? N- naming is
0: a big UX concern. Definitely.
1: Yeah. And there's also a wallet, like this is, this is four different things to like interact with their wallet. I'm just thinking like a decred wallet has a password. And then if you want to recover it, you can use a mnemonic phrase. That's two things there, but you only use the mnemonic phrase when you want to, um, recover the wallet. I think to sign a transaction, you have a private key. So yeah, it's totally true. There's also like, there's multiple things that are private and need to be kept safe in order to use your wallet hundred percent. But there's, like you said, better ways to inform people of like how to interact with your, with your application.
0: Yeah. Like it may not be possible to simplify like those four things, like make it less than four. But there may be a much better way to present those for, like you said, with naming or with just better tooling that guides you through these processes much more effectively or, uh, you know, things like that. Yep. So broadly, I think Crypto UX, of course, still has quite a ways to go.
1: But I think a good place to start is just, you know, put yourself in like your network participant shoes. That means your investor shoes, your your token holder, coin holder shoes and people like that. So... Another alert that came in through the platform is there's a company called Surdicay, and they have launched this auto scan engine, which is kind of this like programmatic tool to look at vulnerabilities in, in token code. So uh, they put out a, a release and I'll just read it here. It's just really interesting. So after conducting a full inspection of token contracts on Etherscan, which took roughly three hours. The team has released the initial desensitized scan results for industry reference. Among the top 500 tokens, 53 are impact with severity of loopholes with a total market cap of 40 million. Among them, 70% of smart contracts have integer overflow issues and 30% have functional correctness issues. And then due to security and safety concerns, CertiK will not be identifying the token names or locations of vulnerabilities that were identified to have issues by auto scan process. Instead, CertiK will be reaching out to these projects directly in order to help fully investigate these smart contracts. So that's pretty cool to see a, a service like that. These numbers are pretty crazy. 70% of smart contracts have inter- integer overflow issues and 30% have functional correctness issues.
0: Also a hell of a way to do lead gen. Right. Just figure out a way to scan all of the issues and just reach out to people. I'm sure that these full investigations will be uh, profitable. Yeah. Which, I mean, not being cynical, good for them if they turn into a successful business. But that's it's a pretty great way to find your customers. Right.
1: And then another alert that came in, which was pretty interesting. So Google is adding Ethereum to BigQuery. And we'll post a link in the show notes.
0: This one I found interesting because... Uh, You know, part of what we're doing is trying to uh, generate alerts off of on-chain data. And this is one of the first big projects we're seeing where essentially you're able to combine like some of like Google services. I think Kaggle or one of those companies has Ethereum as a data set that you can essentially query. So you can use some of their like cloud tools that you're already used to for dealing with data sets directly against some of these chains so that's pretty it's a fascinating development i think and making some of this stuff much more accessible
1: yeah and it looks like they had, had released a similar thing for bitcoin earlier in the year and uh i just wanted to read something from this uh from this press release so this is what they say Th- they're comparing ethereum and bitcoin here with regards to the system architecture ethereum resembles bitcoin in that it primarily serves to record immutable transactions Both are essentially OLTP databases and provide little in the way of OLAP, OLAP, analytics functionality. However, the Ethereum dataset is notably distinct from the Bitcoin dataset, and they give three examples. So the first one, the Ethereum blockchain's primary crypto economic unit of value is Ether, while the Bitcoin blockchain's unit of value is Bitcoin. However, the majority of value transferred on the Ethereum blockchain is composed of so-called tokens. Tokens are created and managed by smart contracts. That's the first point. Second point, Ether value transfers are precise and direct, resembling accounting ledger debits and credits. This is in contrast to Bitcoin value transfer mechanism for which it can be difficult to determine the balance of a given wallet address. I'm not sh- totally sure what that second one means. Okay, but here's the third one. Addresses can not only be wallets that hold balances, but also contain smart contract byte code that allows the programmatic creation of agreements and automatic triggering of their execution an aggregate of coordinated smart contracts could be used to build a decentralized autonomous organization so that was pretty interesting to see like how they characterize ethereum versus bitcoin so they go into some of the kind of queries and analyses you can do and the main areas that they're looking at are smart contract function calls on-chain transaction time series and transaction networks smart contract function analytics. So this one is related to like some of the stuff that we've been working on, which is why this is pretty interesting. So the first thing, example they have is popular smart contract event logs. So that you can query something like, what are the 10 most popular Ethereum collectibles that ERC721 contracts by number of transactions? So, and then they get into CryptoKitties and then, then they look at transaction volumes and transaction networks. And Then they go go into the OmiseGo token airdrop. It's a pretty cool article. It's definitely worth looking at if you're interested in on the analytics side of what kinds of questions you can ask and how you can, you know, what kind of answers you could get.
0: Yeah, but it's a good development, I think, overall because like making these networks more accessible via traditional analytics tools is only going to increase like transparency which I think is good for the system overall. Yeah, it's inevitable. Moving into some of the uh, alerts we've discovered in the last week in the platform, the first one I wanted to talk about is very relevant as we've been working on uh, some of our wallet listener uh, features. So basically, if everyone's familiar with uh, Silk Road, it was a essentially like an online black market that was one of the first to sort of accept Bitcoin, and then the founder was uh, arrested and a lot of the assets seized and whatnot. But basically there's a wallet that is attributed to Ross Albrecht that is holding about, in total with Bitcoin and now Bitcoin Cash because the fork, uh, about $800 million uh, worth of currencies. And essentially what we've seen is a bunch of that uh, money has moved to Bitfinex, Binance, and BitMEX. So this is interesting because it's essentially something that had been quiet since I think twenty thirteen, but I'd have I will post the article for all of the details. So, you know, we've had these assets just sitting in this wall for a long time and all of a sudden a very large like hundreds of millions of dollars worth haven't moved to the exchanges, raising the concerns about a price crash from all of this being dumped on the market if someone's trying to cash out. So, you know, there's a number of these, uh, you know, this is one very notable one because of the sort of criminal history associated with it, but there's a number of very large wallets that are pretty static and I think can have a big impact on the market. So just keeping an eye on them is is an interesting problem.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, the known Satoshi addresses, people would always want to know, like, if any of those coins are ever going to move. and any like Roger Veer, like any of these like large Bitcoin holders, we'd of course want to know. And it's also important to remember, like a wallet doesn't mean it's a person. Like
0: you can have multiple wallets. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting with this one is like, I think in 2011, like claimed this was his address. And I think for no reason to doubt that that's the case, but I think six, five weeks or six weeks after he was arrested, there was still some activity in that wallet. And now we've seen activity again. So there's definitely someone else with access to that, to those funds. Yeah,
1: and, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I wonder, like, how this could affect his his appeals case. So, like, basically the idea is that, so something he has claimed is that Dread Pirate Roberts was multiple people. And, like, he only had the helm, at, like, uh, during one of the points, or maybe he just started it, and like, others went to it. But there's a lot of weird stuff about the case. There's, like, talk about, like, some of the FBI agents who ended up being arrested for, like, stealing Bitcoin from him, they had come up with false charges around the murder yeah, for hire stuff. Yeah, the whole stuff. assassination
0: so, stuff turned out to be a hoax, right? So there was all of this, like, chat logs that claimed that he had tried to hire some assassins and pay for it in Bitcoin.
1: I, I don't know if hoax is the right word, but it wasn't part of the case against him by the okay. government.
0: So it's not been, so like, like it w- verified, or there's some questions around it.
1: There's a lot of questions around it because that, uh, I think what he was claiming is like none of that stuff happened and the FBI agent, the, like the FBI agents who went rogue, there were like two of them. They had kind of put that in the record.
0: Yeah. And there definitely was some, some issue with some of these agents having, like they had taken some Bitcoin illegally.
1: Yeah. I mean, they stole it from him.
0: Yeah. Like that is in the record. I think there's a there's
1: a guy who's in jail. Like both of them are in jail now. Uh, it's just a crazy, fascinating case. And
0: and now we're seeing that money
1: move all of a sudden. Yeah, now we're seeing that money move. So <laughs> who knows what is happening?
0: Yeah. So that's that. You know. So like just just by watching a wallet, a whole bunch of questions raised. So that's that's an interesting one. Another one, and this happened uh, back August 23rd, but I think it's still interesting to talk about. Because it ties to some of the other stuff that we do in our platform, so Bitmex went into uh, maintenance mode, and essentially what happened was there was a bunch of people that were uh, shorting Bitcoin, and they had some stop losses set. But while Bitmex was in maintenance mode, the theory or the yeah, the theory is that the Bitcoin price was pumped so that when Bitmex came back online, a bunch of these shorts essentially auto-liquidated because they had hit their stop losses, causing them to buy. And so we see this price jump from 6450 to about $7,100 almost instantly. And the reason people think that this was something that was sort of created by a few whales was that there was no news event that would have caused the price to move so suddenly. It happened on BitMEX specifically first, before the other exchanges caught on. And there was a pretty rapid retracement back to the 6450 price. So, again, this is the sort of thing that we like watch exchanges and we get all of the wallet maintenance events. So, it's interesting to see a big price movement tied to one of them. And I think in uh, traditional finance, this is called a, a short squeeze. So, I don't know if you want to talk about how, how that works.
1: Yeah. Like, so BitMEX is thought to be, I think we called it before, like a bear's palace. Like, if you want to short Bitcoin and margin, it's super easy to do it there. Just create your account, go, you know, put a little capital in. You can do like 50 to 100 to 1 Bitcoin short if you have the the spot to do that. So the way short squeeze works, and we actually got into like pretty deep, like into how shorting works overall, just the me- mechanics of it, like the psychology of it on a prior pod- podcast. But the way the squeeze works and the psychology, I think it's psychology is super important here. So just a quick explanation and then we can get into the specifics. So a short squeeze is when a highly shorted asset starts moving up and then everyone who short it is basically like shit we have to cover or we better start thinking about covering. And then once they actually start covering, when you start covering, you're buying stock back and that, means that the price just keeps going up. So short squeezes can be absolutely brutal to shorts. And they often happen when people are wrong. And then I guess, you know, weird situations like this. So you don't really see stuff like this in the stock market. Like this is clearly like a type of manipulation. But the way this would have worked was, you know, you have all these people on BitMEX, the Bear's Palace, who are short Bitcoin. And then the Bear's Palace goes into maintenance mode, So now there isn't as much selling pressure on Bitcoin. And then people who know that BitMEX is a bear's palace are like, oh, okay, well, now all the shorts are not going to be able to do anything. So let's just make the price go up. So they do that. And, you know, people are starting to get auto-liquidated because of stop losses and whatnot. And the thing with short squeezes is when people are getting auto-liquidated, the only way to do that is if the exchange just is buying back bitcoin on their behalf and if the exchange is buying back bitcoin then that's obviously going to make this price go up and it's just uh it just causes like a cascade effect and there are these small cap stocks which i've seen which people have been short that when they get a short squeeze they just uh they can go up like 40 percent 50 percent very easily a highly controversial stock like tesla or herbalife back in the day could have moved like 20, 30% on a Tesla less so, but Herbalife definitely would have moved like 30, 40% very easily on a short squeeze. So you see them around like earnings events, for example. So if Herbalife just was heavily shorted going into a quarter and then it turns out that they had a phenomenal quarter and then they raised guidance on the rest of the year, that means all the shorts are wrong because they were were short going into the quarter. So they have to start covering. And once they start covering, then that's over. It's over because like the stock will be up a ton and short selling can often exacerbate uh, price movements in stocks. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us, because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.